Before we start prayers, just to let you know, I got a letter from Connie, <laughs> bless her soul. It was actually comic, even though what's behind it is, you know, it is comic if we look at it, I think, the right way. Anyway, she said her husband was on the way back from the store a couple of days, or Christmas, and with the grandchildren, and the car stopped before he got home, and they thought it was a battery, it wasn't. They went to a store to get a battery, that didn't fix it, they had to put it in a shop. Two days later, his truck went out. They had no transportation. Finally, they, I guess they got something, and she went to this lake. I can't remember the lake. I think in Louisiana, it's where she was born, to go to the funeral of the wife of a cousin that she knew well. And she was looking forward to the trip because she hadn't seen her brother-in-law in a long time. So she went for the funeral the funeral of this, the wife of a cousin, and her brother-in-law died a few days later. So she went for that funeral, her brother died, and um, so they came home. This is Connie with her humor. She said the, the door had been repaired and she wanted to get a hold of the people to come to do the finishing touches on it. So she scheduled an appointment for the doorman to come and she learned that the funeral of her cousin's wife was on that same day, so she couldn't come. So she scheduled it for another day and learned shortly afterwards that that was the day her brother-in-law's funeral was scheduled. <laughs> this is Connie with those little, whatever those smiling faces are, whatever you call those things. Um, yeah. And, yeah, right. Her last words was, I'm not going to make any plans. For, told her husband, Keith, I'm not going to make any plans for a while. So, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, for your presence with us, for all the many ways in which you offer yourself, particularly in little things, and in a special way for all that we're doing as a group. Um, just amazing that we do this together. Um, Ties are forming, they have formed. We carry each other in our hearts and minds. When somebody's missing, we know it. Um, I ask for a special blessing on Linda. God, help her recover. Um, help her injuries to heal. Be with her. Give her um, a spirit of gladness. She's alive. She could have been killed, not here. She's alive. Help her to be glad, even if it's painful. We ask for a special blessing on Connie um, to keep that cheerful heart of hers continuously cheerful. Um, receive um, her cousin's wife. Um, take away, wash away her sins. Let her know the joy of being with you and um, her brother-in-law, receive him into your kingdom, um, wash away his sins. Let our prayer, it's one of the great gifts of our church in, the, in our secular world in Protestant, we tend to focus so much on individual choices and individual wills. We offer these prayers because at the center of our faith is a mystical body. People are working for us and we often don't even know them. So let our prayers speed um, her cousin's wife and her brother-in-law 
and let Connie rejoice in their passing into um, joy, um, joy into joy. Um, um, offer a special thanksgiving for Mary. Those of you who may not know, she wrote a letter to me the other day. I think last week, just before class, she ended up having to go to a hospital. <laughs> had a hip replacement. And shortly after that, I think one of the side effects, if I'm getting this right, were her feet and her daughter told her mother, we've got to go to ER. Because you know that there are complications sometimes with the surgery. So she went and everything's okay. She wrote and said, I may be here tonight or not. And Suzanne at dinner tonight said, she just had a hip replacement. She's not going to be there. I said, it's Mary. <laughs> and lo and behold, um, bless, bless, bless that servant who loves you so much, Lord. Bless her. Keep that sturdy ready-to-laugh soul of hers close to you. We offer these prayers in your name. Oh, and I ask a special blessing on Suzanne. Help her to recover from the cold. We miss her here. Um, help us all to get back together again in good health. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, before we start the formal part of our work tonight, uh, let me um, say a couple of things. One is, depending on what you guys all do in the next minute, because I'm going to ask for a show of hands here, we will finish um, Revelation next week. That was my plan. I do not want to rush through this book. So we're, we, we're going to go up to, I think, about chapter 20, 1920. Just before the new city, I saw a new city. It's one of the glorious lines of literature. I saw this new city. Um, the city has been a focus of our concern. All the Iliad, the Odyssey, it's been at the center of our attention. Enoch, the founder of the first city, you know. We take it so for granted, um, but good literature doesn't, and we looked at it. Um, we will reach a point in Revelation where, where things couldn't get any darker. And there's, then there's this description of this new city, unlike anything John had seen before. So we'll go up to there. Next week we'll pick up there, or just before, and finish Revelation. If there's time next week, um, I will leave time for us to put the whole Gospel Revelation series together to see what your mind is. I'll, I'll have some thoughts on it. I think you've been hearing them all along anyway. but. There's time, we'll give some time to that. <clears throat> if not, I'll look forward. One of the things I want to ask you tonight is this, and I already know where one of you is going to be on this question. I've been under some serious heat from one of you to watch this series called The Chosen. <laughs> um, <laughs> and if you've heard the quiet exchanges after class because I've been trying to be discreet about it. She didn't make that easy on me. Because um, I, have, I have a real skeptical attitude towards faith-based movies. In, in fact, I started a book on it last year and I had to put it aside to do this other writing that I've been doing. I, I so badly want to return to it. Because I know you know that one of my concerns is Catholic art 
And I just think our church is behind times. Always, it in some ways it has to be. But I'm, I'm, I'm really troubled at faith-based movies because they have such an influence on our culture and there are ways in which they subtly invite people into Christianity but with problems. And to get to those problems you have to go to the differences between our, the Protestant Catholic world. Um, anyway, I was reluctant. But we started watching it, and in the third episode had me ready to turn it off. Suzanne was really enjoying it. And because of the pressure of this unnamed person, <laughs> we've been watching it, and I've been th thoroughly enjoying it. And I've got serious questions with this series, serious questions. But I think, it, I think what the people are doing in this is tremendous and wonderful, and I, I can't say that strongly enough. What they're doing is, if you think about the last... 10, 15 years in American culture, you've got Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, um, Westworld, things like that. Um, what's the spaceship one? The Battlestar Galacta had a, an important role for a while. This is the first thing I've seen on TV since I was a kid that does any justice to Christ's life. And I, if you knew, if you have any sense of who I am and how skeptical I am about this, you know how serious that is for me to say that. What this guy is doing, um, Dallas Jenkins I think is his name, what he's doing is amazing. He's learned from literature, the way they flash back, the way he connects things from the past to the present. Um, I'm just going to mention a, f a few of the things. I'm not going to go into my the concerns I have about it. They bring a spirit of reverence, a wonderful spirit of reverence to the Jewish world that I, I believe is essential. Because the modern Jew, for the most part, has turned away from God while still claiming to be a Jew. It's a sad thing. Um, the Bible says salvation waits on the Jews. If we believe the Bible, we've got to believe that. What the Jewish world is doing right now and has done is doesn't leave us much hope. Because the modern Jew, except for the very Orthodox Jews, has turned away from his faith. Um, hi. You're not. Are you here? You're not here for the class. Is it back? Um. One of the things I love about this program, has, I mean, has nothing to do with Christianity. I mean, I know it will, but early on in the movie, we're taken into a Jewish world thoroughly, and I, I, my heart gladdens when I watch what they're doing. They're showing the Jewish world in all of its struggles for holiness. If you compare that world, our, that world, the Jewish world, that world of the past, to our modern world, you have to say, thank God, because in our world, we don't believe in anything. We're in a vacuum. In that world, the Jews believe in God. There was, there was nothing they did that didn't acknowledge God. They carried God with them all the time. I mean, there are problems. Christianity is going to open them. But you have to look at that world and say, thank God, because of the contrast between that world and ours. So what they do with the Jewish world, to me, is remarkable. It's so good. It's so good. What he does, the guy who's put it together, I think his name is Dallas Jenkins, 
is focus on the chosen. I don't think it's the Israel tribe, it's the people who will be disciples, followers of Christ. So he takes us into the backstories of all these peoples in a way we don't get in Scripture. Um, and he makes the Bible real because we go into their lives on an ordinary, everyday basis. So we're moving about the world the same way we do. The, the major overriding theme of, of, that runs through, I mean, we're halfway through the second season, the main theme that runs through that um, season so far, that, that series, and somebody may question me, but just to get this out, is there's a tendency on the part of all these people, particularly the Jews, to compromise their religion and in some ways to betray it and each other because the tendency is to move in the direction of the state. How modern is that? It's an occupied, it's an occupied people. The Romans occupy them, so they're, they're the ideal by which they measure everything. Success, power, control, leisure, all of that's there. So, they may, so, in some sense, it's a glimpse of modern Christians who stand in the same way to our modern state. How often do we compromise our faith for money, for power, for control, for status? So, the backstory of all of these people is some form of that betrayal, that compromise. There are exceptions. Mary's taken by demons, but for the most part, all of these men um, are caught in some form of a compromise of their faith, which means they end up betraying each other personally in some way. So they carry wounds, they carry resentments, and into this world comes Christ, the Messiah they've been waiting for. Um, and then we, we watch Christ perform these miracles that have this effect on his disciples and everybody else. It kept, for me, it got tearful at times. I mean, to watch him you know, in the middle of these dramas when we're watching these people struggle, we get very involved in their personal lives, so we get caught up in them. It's not just talking about Mary and then going on to somebody else. We're in their lives for a while. So when something happens, it means more to us. So when Christ comes in, what he does has a greater impact because we're seeing what he does in light of this backstory that we've gotten on Peter, Matthew, Philip, you know, whoever they are. So I would encourage everybody to watch this series. If you're not already watching it, I would, I would encourage you to do it pretty seriously, whether you agree with it or not. Um, here's my question to you. We were going we to stop with Revelation and take a two-week break. We can still do that. My question is, to, I don't know how many of you are watching this or if any of you have an interest. I know Heather and I have got a talk ahead of us somewhere here, but... Um, but what, I, what I'd like to suggest is that if you are interested in watching it, that we take a night off, talk about what this guy is doing. I've got reservations. Serious. They won't stop me from watching it, and my own response to it is, bless his soul. Because what he's, I think, what he's doing is going to draw a lot of Jewish people, some Jewish people, into Christianity. And he's going to draw a lot of non-believers into Christianity. That's a grace. I mean, that's a really good thing. I've not seen another program. Game of Thrones, Westworld, Battlestar Galactica. You know, you're not going to find that. This guy has captured the American audience and, and probably a global audience 
like Breaking Bad or, or uh, Game of Thrones. He's doing a wonderful job. So it, and it, it does not rest on violence or sex, which Game of Thrones did. I mean, I don't care what anybody said. Game of Thrones' appeal was sexual violence. This, this appeal is to something human going on between individuals. And one of the, one of the lovely touches of this guy is you can't, you can't watch it for two minutes without laughing. There's a sense of irony to all of it. I mean, they're playing with each other um, as they're learning to deal with each other's faults. So there's a wonderful sense of irony. There's a wonderful sense of human weakness in people dealing with them. But it's done well enough to hold our attention. So it's not violence, it's not sex. It's human beings struggling, and they happen to be struggling in this story in the context of a belief in God, Jewish, at that moment when their Messiah comes into the world, and they don't know what to make of it. How was that? Was that a good enough plug for it? So here's my question. Do you all want to spend an evening or not? We can take our break and come back and spend an evening, or we can pick up with the literature that, you know, my, our plan was to finish Revelation, take a couple weeks, come back for a dinner night, and then for those of you who want to return to literature, we, we go back to literature and Moby Dick, which is, to me, um, you know that I've been talking about literature as prophecy. I think it's one of the major prophetic works on the American character. It just, it, um, it, it shows something about our Protestant background that most people are not going to see. Most literature teachers won't even touch it, so. Anyway, any response? Are any of you interested? Have any, how many, have any of you been watching it besides Heather? I think Alexis has. Anybody watch it at all? Have you been? Yeah. Melody, how are you finding it? I love it. Oh, good. Mike, can you turn that down? I feel the disciples are shown in a way that makes me feel Jesus could use me. They're not perfect. They're they fight with me. Uh oh. I'm serving him. That's all Jesus needs us to be. He needs us to be us and he can work with us. Yeah. Work with all. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I get out of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's good for you. One of the touching moments in this in the episode we have been watching last night is Mayor, the, the disciples are gathered around a campsite while Jesus is one all day curing people. He's exhausted and gives the disciples a chance to take a break because they're worn out too. And it gets bitter. The resentments, the buried wounds just um, come to the surface. In one of the personal expressions, Mary um, describes herself as the mother of Jesus and being a mom. She actually uses the word mom, which would have been unheard of in a Jewish world. But this guy's trying to find a contemporary idiom, and he does a job here. There's, a, there's one time when I, I think it's probably Matthew says something about, what do you do with that 
those differences because he's Matthew's on Matthew's got he's what's the word compulsive obsessive compulsive disorder he's got that in spades um, he's talking about differences and getting he can't reconcile these differences and Christ's response was um, get used to different <laughs> that's so contemporary this guy's using contemporary language and trying to still be faithful to an ancient Jewish world and it's one of the attractions um, in last night's episode the disciples and Mary are at the campsite fire and Mary's describing her experiences as a mother she says as a mom um, she loved having him because you know like most women when you when you when you're pregnant you've heard all this stuff about being pregnant but when the moment comes and you deliver and you've got that child in your hand I mean if a mother doesn't experience a miracle at that moment I don't but say about her heart because you just brought a living human being into the world and women would turn that in for a career um, Mary's grieving because she, go, she is recalling a time when Jesus needed her. And she says, he doesn't need me anymore. You know, she's recognizing that something is calling him away. He's got things to do. I, I'll never forget that. I mean, this is the, the, the obtuse side, whatever you want to call it, of men, fathers. Would have never occurred to me, would never have occurred to me as a man. Um, when we got to a point in our life um, when Jonathan, who was the last, was going off to school and Suzanne had, you know, had been at home watching over each of the kids. And Jonathan, when our youngest, was going off to school and she expressed a kind of sorrow because she's going to be by herself now. All the kids are gone. She was facing a threshold moment when what had filled her life would be gone. So, and I thought to myself when she said that, I would have never felt that I would never experienced it but it she made it real for me Mary has that kind of moment she talks about Christ and how much he needed her and lamenting that he won't need her anymore that's in this scene when they get in the middle of the squabble and they're fighting with each other which they do a lot of um, just as Melody said um, we, we learn a lot about them and they're the human side of them it's just being very very real present Christ comes into the arena he's just came from this little shelter where he'd been performing these miracles and the line just kept getting longer all day long. People were hearing about it and they came to him to be healed. And he walks across the field towards the fire and everybody stops. They're ready to fight each other. Again, they stand up ready to fight each other, two of them, Peter and, and uh, I can't remember, John, somebody that two pairs of men are ready to fight each other. Christ comes in and they just become speechless for a moment. So, we're sort of held breathless because we've been watching these guys make idiots of themselves again. They've been ready to fight over principles. They're good. They're accusing each other of not being good because they weren't. They were betrayed, but they're good men. So, and they're thinking they're noble. They did what they had to do. They made compromises for their family. <laughs> you know, so suddenly Christ walks across the field and comes approaches the fire and instead of coming when there's a dispute to settle he walks past them and says I'm exhausted he goes to the tent God bless he goes to the tent and shakes off it tries to shake off his sandals and it's as if he can't stoop down he's exhausted Mary sees it 
his mother. She sees it, gets up from the group and rushes over, takes off his sandals and washes his feet. So it's, it's a prefiguration of the feet washing. And we've just heard her say, he won't need her anymore. And he makes some comment to the effect that, thank you and I'm always glad that you're here, as if he would never stop needing her, you know. Anyway, it's a touching, touching series. I've got serious questions that I want to raise with this group. Um, but it's doing an amazing, an amazing thing. I don't know where it's going in the second season. I don't know what they're doing in the third season. But um, Suzanne has also already indicated that if I don't watch it with her, she's going to divorce me. So. Suzanne on one hand and Heather on the other. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and Mary somewhere in there. <laughs> anyway, my question is, do you want to take some time? Is that enough of an interest to you? I'd be glad to do it. I think it would be good to do. Are you okay to do it? You want to take, you want to take that up at the end of Revelation? You want to take a break, or two-week break, and then come back and do it? What's your will? What would you like to do? Yeah. So before I do, I would sure like to hear your pitfalls and what you think. Well, you're going to have to wait because I'm not going <laughs> to. I may wait to see it. Yeah, Bob, I, I can't do that. You know that's been a principle of mine. When, when we do the literature, I've always asked you guys to read that, not go to Cliff Notes, not do something so that you had your own reading of it. Um, I don't want to color anything. I really would like you guys to experience this. Um, you, can, you can do it after we talk. Um, for me, they're real, but they're not enough, they're not enough to keep me from watching this. I mean, uh, Bob, I, 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 I may be misspeaking here, but I, would, I think if you knew me, and I think you probably do, and so, my feelings about this are so, so I, I wrote a book I, I'm so concerned about the differences between the utopian left, the Protestant world, and Catholicism. And you know how much I love movies. So my focus is on film and the way the faith-based films have taken, have made a niche for themselves. In They're not going to take Hollywood away. Hollywood's gone. But they've really carved out, and these faith-based movies have got a real grip on people. It's, it's like their only answer to the horrors of the world. It bothered me enough that I want to write a book. That's how serious I am. And I did not want to watch this movie, despite some arm twisting by some people. Um, but I'm watching, I'm really glad for what this guy's doing. And this, this is me, and I, I think it's fair to me to save myself. I am very, very critical of movies. You said before, I can't, we were watching The Judge or something, and you were saying, Do you, you know, I mean, my eye for details in movie is so, I, I am so tuned to, sent to small things because I'm, I'm, personally, I'm so concerned about the influence that movies have in our culture, unconscious, that what it's done to modern woman, what it's done to man. I, I hope I'm not misspeaking. I'd say I'm far more sensitive than anybody in this room to little things in movie, enough to turn me off. Um, 
My preference, I think I heard Karen's, I mean, but when, when I watch something that's sentimental or nice, I want to, I want to, I want to turn on a Bruce Willis violent movie. I mean, my, my, I, I mean, I've got, I've got to get to a shootout movie just to find my feet again because that sweet world drives me nuts. And if I remember correctly, your, yours and my, your and my hearts are pretty. I've got a movie that I've wanted to present to this movie. It's called Man from Nowhere. It's a Japanese movie. It's one of those violent movies. I've, I would love to watch it with you guys, but I, I, I don't even think I. I mean, I don't think I can dare because it is so. So, but I cannot give that away. I just cannot. One of the things that I'd like to do, if you're okay with it, is watch it and ask questions to see what you're seeing. Because you know I'm going to come out to give you my mind. But I really would like to hear what you're seeing, what you're not seeing. That's so important to me. Always has been as a teacher. So how do we do that? How do we do it? There's eight per season. And, and, there's, and there's two seasons? There's two seasons that are on Prime, Amazon right now. The third one is not available on Prime. It's not available, right? Now. It'll be... Actually, wait. I went online last night because... And I found there's actually, when I Googled it, somebody, interestingly, is making that available free. He's paid for it. Because you can't get it on the regular servers without subscribing to a program. Whoever this guy is thought well enough of it. I'm assuming this would have cost millions and millions of dollars to make it available. I'll send you all a link for the, the third. third no, the third, the third season. The third. You can get the first two seasons on Prime on Amazon yeah. at no cost. It's free. Karen, sorry. Would you mind getting some water? Sure. Thanks. Well, I would think that since some of us have not watched any of it, that it would probably be better if the discussion were more based on some of the earlier programming rather than something several seasons in. How about if we do this? Let's, let's take a break after next week and do it as we planned. We'll take a break. We'll come back for a dinner movie night. And at that point, I'll ask you if you want to, so that's when we'll pick up again. If you want to start, you know, with what we set in motion, we'll start with a, a cla one class devoted to that, if you'd like. And if not, we're on to Moby Dick. How was that? Is that all right? Next week we're in class. Next week we're in class. Two week break. Thank you so much. Do you want to do a two week break? So the thirty first and the seventh? Yep. If that's whatever the dates are, I don't know. Okay. We we meet next week to finish Revelation. We take two weeks off. We come back for a dinner movie night. It's a surprise. You may never want to come back to class if you see this. <laughs> it's a comic movie. It's not anyway. Have a movie dinner night. And then we resume. We pick up our work again. Uh, what are the books that we're going to read in the next session? Say? What are the books that we're going to be reading for the next Moby session? Moby Dick and... Um, 
I think it's Dostoevsky's Brothers Care Mazum. I'll write you, I'll give you, I thought I sent it out. I'll, I'll send out a list again. It'll be Moby Dick, Brothers Karamazov. I can't. I think you said at some point you said Scarlet Letter, but I don't. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm sort of, yes. Um, um, Go Down Moses by Faulkner, which is Faulkner's answer to Moby Dick. Flanner O'Connor, The Violent Bared Away, Catholic writer. Um, Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, which is a overpowering drama about Sir, uh, drama about Sir Thomas Beckett's or, yeah, um, murder. And something modern, I mean more modern than that, um, we, um, I want to do T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, which is going to be a difficult poetry, something like that, and I think we're done. Something like that. Sorry? Well, that's a lot. That's a, you have to put, you have to put up with me for another year to do that. Okay, any questions? So next week we'll finish Revelation. Two weeks, and then I'll get back to you. We'll um, have a sign up for dinners. I'm going to ask Father to promote it and see if we can't get once again people involved in the dinner night. And then we will start. We'll either come back and have an evening on The Chosen or we start Moby Dick. I'm going to send you a reading list again so you can start reading any of that. Moby Dick's. You're going to choose Valentine's Day over Moby Dick. <laughs> See, that's why I'm worried. That's why I'm worried about that movie series. <laughs> we'll we'll make whatever adjustments we need to the way the way we the way we always do. Let's, I'm going to write you so you don't have to do this now because I want to get going. I'll, I'll put it down. Did you all sign up for a dinner for next week and then after the, after the break? Let's, let's. I mean, you can you know you can you can watch several a night. I mean, they're short. I think they're forty minutes long. You can watch several in a night and feel like you've watched a movie. It's um, and see what you think. I would just say I don't know how you guys are going to find this. I, the third season for me, I mean, the third episode in the first season left me concerned, but and I have the same concerns. But everything they've done to me is so so well done, so well done. Let's start. We've got to get going here. Yes. Okay. We read Robinson's Luke Havergal. Remember, it's this dark prophetic poem that is as if somebody's calling Havergal to the dark gates where the leaves are falling. So um, it's permeated with images of death and some danger to him that. 
It may have been involving, it may have involved a betrayal of a woman, sexual, um, but we don't know. But what we do know is he's, he's, he's facing a reckoning, a dark reckoning, okay? We've done Alan Tate's The Cross. I want to read it again because it seems to me it's fitting in light of the darkness of um, Revelation. Um, we've done him before. Alan Tate was, I think, one of the finest American or one of the finest critics in the modern world. He and T.S. Eliot. Um, presented some of the most amazing works on criticism. Tate was a practicing poet as well, so he knew poetry from the inside. It gave him a, um, a, gave him a perspective on poetry that very often literature teachers who aren't poets don't have. Um, Ivor Winters was um, another one of the most important literary critics of our time. And he and Tate had um, fire exchanges sometimes because they, they came from two very different ways of looking at the world. Tate converted to Catholicism in the middle of his life. Um, Jacques Maritain was his uh, godfather. Jacques, you've heard me talk about him. If you've not read him, I think Jacques Maritain's probably the most important philosopher of the modern age. He, 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 the intellectuals won't put him in a class with Heidegger or Hegel or you know, other philosophers like that, but um, he, he is, I think, the most important critic over time. And I think he had the soul of a poet, what he did with language. There isn't an aspect of our world that he didn't cover from a Thomistic point of view. Art, nature, philosophy, science, politics, you name it. He, he, he took Thomas's perspective and brought them to bear on every field and the outcome of his work is tremendous. Um, he was um, Tate's um, godfather. I love Tate. Um, he, he had a troubled life, um, very troubled life. Sexually, he had, I, there were problems with his mother. I don't even know what they were, but they were pretty serious. And um, some things came out on the biography on him that were scandalous. It would have been better not to have known, but they're there. Um, I've read him at times and come to tears. I mean, I got teary one night. There was nothing tearful about what I was reading. It was a criticism, it was a work of criticism. But the personal quality that he brought without ever becoming personal was amazing. What he could do, what he could bring out in poetry. I mean, in his criticisms. Um, just a couple of comments on the cross. Um, I, I, in all my reading and literature, I'm not aware of another work that stands inside of hell the way this one does. He is speaking from within a hellish condition and damned. And let me just speak to that. He, it seems to me that's one of the things that made him great. That he had the courage to admit. Susanna and I were talking tonight about Revelation and she's was talking about the people who are marked with the um, devil sign, the 666, that, and said, um, you know, I, I, I don't believe I'm one of them, but I can't know it. I, you know, I may be marked, I, I don't think I am, but there are times when I go to sleep wondering. It takes a certain courage, I think, for most of us to ask where we are. Are we in danger with Christ or not? Are we okay? Tate had the courage to stand from in that and show the horror of it 
that people who didn't have the courage, who stand outside of it, would have been easily condemning of it. We just would have said, bad, 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 bad. So it's a rare, it's a rare glimpse of the horrors of hell from inside and outside. And in that sense, it seems to me perfectly appropriate for what we're doing with Revelation. Okay. Now, because I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take much time on this when we go through it, but um, remember, the, the title is The Cross. What we're going to see is, and those of you who remember the Auden poem, the um, Hore Canonicae, the Hours, remember, there were descriptions in Auden's poem. Remember the scapegoating that went on every hour of the day that corresponded to the Passion? Where he comes to a moment where he describes the picnic and the cross at the center. You know, the perichoresis, the people dancing around the cross. That, because the cross is central to a Christian's life. But that was for those who were saved. The cross is now here the center of hell because that's what people have refused. Okay? So just be aware of that. His, his images are meant to be images of, of the, what happens to the souls who refuse that cross. That's at the very center of Revelation, because at the very center of Revelation is God doing all he can for people. All he can. And what happens to those who don't make a place for him. Okay. Alman takes the cross. There is a place that some men know. I cannot see the whole of it, nor how I came there. Long ago, flame burst out of a secret pit, crushing the world with such a light. The day sky fell to moonless black, the kingly sun to hateful night, for those once seen turning back. For love so hates mortality, which is the providence of life, she will not let it blessed be, but curses it with mortal strife, until beside the blinding rood, the cross, within that world-destroying pit, like young wolves that have tasted blood of death, men taste no more of it. So blind in so severe a place, all life before in the black grave, the last alternatives they face of life without the life to save, being from all salvation weaned, a stag charged both at heel and head, being attacked from both sides, who would come back is turned a fiend, instructed by the fiery dead. Everybody who refuses him will take on a fiendish nature, whatever happens to them in hell. Let me read it just once more. So hold on to the image of the cross and hold on to blood, because you know that for a Catholic, um, God, it's what turned the murmuring Jews away. Remember at the, the year before in the Bread of Life discourse when he said, um, I'm the bread of life, those who eat, drink. And the Jews were so horrified at the thought that they would drink human blood that they left. So for us, blood is at the center of it. It's the Eucharist. Um, so the cross and the blood. I'll read it once more, and then I'll just leave you to meditate on it, okay? There is a place that some men know. I cannot see the whole of it, nor how I came there. Long ago, flame burst out of a secret pit, crushing the world with such a light. The day sky fell to moonless black, the kingly sun to hateful night. For those once seen turning back, 
For love so hates mortality, which is the providence of life, she will not let it blessed be, but curses it with moral strife, until beside the blinding rood, it's the medieval word for cross, the tree, until beside the blinding rood within that world-destroying pit, like young wolves that have tasted blood of death, men taste no more of it. They want nothing to do with it, mortality, death. So blind in so severe a place, all life before in the black grave, the last alternatives they face of life without the life to save. Being from all salvation weaned, a stag charged both at heel and head, who would come back is turned a fiend, instructed by the fiery dead. The cross. Okay. Just to remind you, I don't, um, some of you were already here. I'm sorry for coming late, um, but um, there are copies of the first, second, and third classes on Revelation in the poems if anybody doesn't have them yet. Okay, let's, let's start. Um, before we begin tonight, I'd um, take a look at the outline that I've given you. What I've done is, um, in the first couple of pages, given the notes for tonight's class, um, all the way up to 19 or 20, and then from page four to the end, what I've done is, as a, as a way of review, giving you sections on the exegetical principles, um, the, the three um, movements, the seals, the trumpets, and the uh, bowls. And then I've given some notes at the end so that you don't have to keep going back to other classes, okay? You can just review here. I, but I want to start with some of the notes at the, at the end, but give me a minute because I've got I've to take a break. Hold on, I'll be right back. You guys visit for a minute, okay?
Those are beautiful. Pretty, pretty. Uh, sorry. I want to read these passages from the Bible that are background to Revelation. So if you turn to the end on page 6, you'll see them. In Deuteronomy, we read this. God spoke of the latter end of Israel. He's already aware these are the chosen people. These are the people he called out for a special mission, and you know that Christ turned from them because they had turned from God. But this is what we get in the Old Testament. Um, God speaks um, of a generation. He, he says, a perverse and crooked generation, children in whom is no faith. That's in Deuteronomy. He warned that on, on that generation he would avenge the blood of his servants. In Leviticus, he warned that Israel will one day receive sevenfold judgments. And we get these, this use of seven multiple times. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Think, if you are contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. If by these things you're not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then also will I walk contrary to you. I will punish you yet seven times more. He goes on again. Um, after all this, if you don't obey me, um, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Go down, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. Come to her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day. Okay. Those are from Old Testament. So we get that figure, and you know that the figure seven generally means completeness. So coming from God, um, there will be something complete to the nature of the punishments that he brings on people. This is from Christ. Remember, um, I've given the passages so you can look them up, but remember um, a number of times Christ identifies himself as coming before um, David and after him and the Jews ask him where did the Messiah come from and he says from the line of David and they ask how could you be after him or before him and Christ says um, he, he says I am he identifies himself that way with God I say to you before Abraham came to be I am they ask how then does David inspired by the Spirit call him Lord saying the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I place your enemies under your feet if David calls him Lord how can he be his son in both instances Christ makes it clear that he was before David as his Lord and he's after him as his heir he will go on he's the Messiah um, When, he, when he's addressing the hypocrisy of the Jews, he says, How can you believe when you accept praise from one another and do not seek the praise that comes only from God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who will accuse you is Moses in whom you have placed your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. This is the very end, page 8. I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will recline with Abraham 
Isaac and Jacob at the banquet in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom will be driven out into the outer darkness where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. It says again, I'm a man of authority. Having This is um, um, when Christ is looking at the faith of some of the people outside of the chosen people. He says, Verily I say to you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west, shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, um, and ask thou how believes, so it be done unto thee. Um, his servant was healed. We get, you know, we've already talked about this. He does that several times. So there's that background from the Old Testament. Now, let me ask, if you could all turn to the notes, if you, if you use them at all. You don't have to, um, but last time I left, um, I left you with a question. And the question was, why is it that the Protestant world tends to read Revelation in a certain way and the Catholic world read it differently. And I said at that time, one of the most important things about Revelation is how to read, and we've been talking about that forever. We don't read well. Why, why does the Catholic world read Revelation in a certain way? It's predictable. And Protestants, in certain ways, although it's a little bit less predictable because there are so many different ways of reading it. Why? Um, and this is the question that I want to um, I'd like to have everybody keep in mind as we go through Revelation. Um, everything in the modern world, particularly in a Protestant America, treats Christ as if he's a buddy. He's a nice guy. If you watch Chosen, you're going to see Christ as a very human, good person. We, when we went through Matthew, I remember saying to everybody, Christ is never anything but severe. We, we never see him speaking ironies or laughing, I can't recall the scene. He's pretty serious all the time. It's the Son of God. He's coming to save the um, lost sheep. And when he discovers that he can't, that they've lost their faith, he turns to the Gentile world and he opens it up and even curses the Jewish world. When we began, when we've, as we've gone through Revelation, when we began it last week, one of the things we see immediately is all these punishments coming from God. They don't stop from the opening seals to the trumpets and to the bulls, we're going to see nothing but catastrophes and natural catastrophes and harms and punishments, violence, everywhere. So the question that I want to ask, I don't want to answer it right now, I want to get to, to the book, but I want to put it out here for everybody to think about. Is this the God of the Old Testament in John? We have an image of God on the throne to begin Revelation. He hands the parchment sealed and nobody can open it. Remember, Christ opens it, and then out of it come these seals, the four horsemen, the plagues, all of it. Is that the wrathful God of the Old Testament? How are we to read John? Is God wrathful? Because the tendency to, in a modern world is to present Christ as merciful, compassionate, forgiving. The picture we get of what's going on in Revelation is hardly that. So one of the serious questions we have to ask ourselves as we finish up this work on the gospel, we did Matthew, John, now we're doing Revelation, it's the end. Revelation is the only book in the Bible that gives us a picture of 
end times. It's the only one to deal with eschatological problems, end times. What, we, what will be unescapably? It's set. It's done. Christ defeated sin, death. It's done. He's left us a time. He will return again. But the outcome of that battle between good and evil has been settled. Christ did it. But in Revelation, we've got chapters describing one catastrophe, one punishment after another. So, this is the last word. Actually, it's not going to be the last word, because I'm, you know, the, I mean, I love the end. The last word will be at the very end. Revelation will say, Christ will call to his bride and say, come, come. And the bride says, come. So the ending is astoundingly beautiful and touching. But in the interim, there's all this violence. So what do we do with that? Um, that's one background, all those passages from the uh, Old Testament. I want to put this in a larger context, and it's one you all should appreciate because we did this together. So hold on here. You remember when we started together, we read the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Actually, we started with Shakespeare, if I remember. We started with Shakespeare and then went back, but we've done that together. You know that every one of those epics, Moby Dick will fall into that category. Every one of those epics ends with a parousia action. We've talked about this. The king returns in power and judgment. Achilles gets out of the war at the beginning of the Iliad. The Greeks are almost destroyed. He loses his friend. He confesses his fault, the only man to do it. He has this new shield. He returns to battle, and nobody can touch him. Nobody. He's destroying Trojans right and left. He brings the war virtually to an end. So we've got the return of the king, Achilles. Odysseus has been away for 20 years, and the suitors have taken over his home. This is domestic now. It's showing a family, a wife and a son. And you know that he has to learn all these things before he can go home. And what he learns makes it possible for him to have something in his marriage that nobody else has. Nestor doesn't have it. The two marriages that begin the opening, Nestor and Menelaus's marriage, don't come close to Odysseus' marriage. He has to suffer. He has to learn those things. Learning is crucial to that ancient world. So my troubles with this um, knowledge. Um, he returns home, bringing power and judgment. The suitors are destroyed. The maidservants are killed, punished. And the order is restored at home. The Aeneid, same thing. Troy is destroyed now. Aeneas has to go on these voyages trying to found a home. And he fails again and again and again. This is the hero who survived Troy. Fails again and again and again and again. Finally, he learns that he's supposed to go to Italy. And he does. He has to settle civil battles because everybody in Italy is killing themselves. He fights Turnus, kills him, and... That we're to understand that that's the opening for the creation of Rome, this new kind of city. So we move from the individual in the Iliad, marriage, the Odyssey, to the city. Rome will be the first eternal universal city. It will be a place for everyone. Doesn't matter what their race is, what their color is, their sex, it's home for everybody. But the cost of it, you can't read the Aeneid without, he has to bear everything everything in order to get there. Every one of those epics ends with a Perusi action. Aeneas has to kill Turnus. Um, and these battles, these violent battles, have to take place in order to bring a peace. 
So the cost of peace is never easy. Every one of those, every one of those epics has a final end aspect, an eschatological aspect, just like Revelation. Find a modern novel like that. Every one of them shows the gods at work in a council. There's an image of Troy being destroyed. The gods are breaking it apart. The gods are there in council. The gods are helping. So the final end involving the gods is always present in those epics. It's one of the marks of the ancient epic. The divine world is always actively involved in ours. Is that clear? It's got to be clear. If you read a modern novel, will you ever come across final end things? No, the novel means new. It's this world. It's empirical. It's what's here. The final ends, the gods, the divine, has no part in a modern novel. Is everybody following? So the background of, in literature of the ancient world is there was always a place for the gods, the divine order involved in man's life. Do we see it in the Gospels? Not usually even though Christ is there. In John, you can't miss it because John is saying over and over, I am, I am, I am, I am. In me you find the Father. So it's always implied in John, but it's the only one. When we get to Revelation, we've entered a world of final ends. We're outside of time as we know it. John has entered a world of a vision. Dante's epic, The Divine Comedy, we've read it. Dante leaves this world in a vision and he goes to final ends. He goes to hell to see learn hell, he goes to purgatory and he goes to heaven. The modern world comes along and that world of final ends is gone. It's as if because it's not scientific, we can't know it. So the only way of knowing things is science. That kind of knowledge is gone. Unless you happen to have the misfortune of coming across an English teacher like me. Is everybody clear? Is everybody clear? Okay. Is there any questions? If, in order to enter that final world, because we're not in this time, we're not in this time, you have to find a language which would be appropriate for it, right? We're in this world. We use like, or let me, when we, if, if I hope we're all together in the next world, will we all be speaking English in that world? Will the common language of heaven be English or Latin or Greek or what will the language be? Will we speak the same? Will words have the same function there? You following? We, we, we have to find, John has to find a language. So remember this from Dante. This is in the level of Jupiter when he's looking at the, we did this. He's looking at the eagle and the eye of the eagle and he's finding pagans there. And he wonders, how in the world, Trajan, how did, and Riffius, how did Trajan and Riffius get in the eye of the eagle? Because they're pagans. And Beatrice has to explain things. To, she uses knowledge to explain to him. Here's the beginning of chapter 19 in the Perdiso. And there before my eyes were wings spread wide, that splendid image shone, shaped by the souls rejoicing in their interwoven joy. They were set there like splendid rubies, lit, each of them, by a gleaming ray of sun, which was reflected, reflected straight into my eyes. We're not in an earthly world. The brilliance, the beauty of it, the light of it is not of this world. And what I have to tell you here and now, my, no, tongue has to, no tongue has told or ink has written down. 
Dante's extraordinary. He did things nobody had ever done in a Homer. He learned from Homer and Virgil. No tongue has told or ink has written down, nor any fantasy imagine it. Because this is not fantasy, this is real. For I could hear the beak and see it moving. Remember, this is the eagle, the eagle of justice. This is the order of the level of God's justice, Jupiter. I heard its voice use words like I and me. The eagle is saying I and me, and I is subject, me is object. He did this to me, I did this, you know, or, or I could hear his voice use words like I and mine, when in conception it was we and ours. Do you remember that? Dante had to find a way to make it clear to us that we've entered a new world and the way we use language was inadequate. That was only one of the examples we used. The other, remember, is his use of reflexive verbs. You remember that. I should give you guys quizzes. Um, reflexive verbs. That halfway up the Paradiso, people were saying like things like, you are indwelling me. I am, un I am in othering you. God is in Godding himself. Because an indwelling, remember, an indwelling is starting to take place. Our God is a Trinitarian God. They in they're, they're indwelling one with another. God, um, the Father and Spirit are in Christ. Christ and the Spirit in God, right? They indwell perfectly one God, but they perfectly indwell. So for us to follow him, since we're made in his image, is to indwell with one another. We have to risk taking everything that's awful about the people we love and make a place for them inwardly. And they have to make a place for us. Or, or we're not becoming one. We can be in a marriage of convenience where we just, you know, live parallel lives with each other, which is not uncommon. But our call is to indwell, to love, to be one with each other. And that's why Dante keeps using those reflexive verbs. You are in othering me. He is in Godding himself. You following? It was a way of describing an action. Who'd ever done that before? So when we enter Revelation, we always have to keep in mind, like these ancient epics, that we're in another world and language is inadequate. So even though he keeps using the word seven, we just cannot make it mechanical. It's real. It refers to an actual reality. We have never to forget that. Okay. The bottom of the first page of the notes. I've given you as, as simple a graph as I can. The whole action, you know, begins in Patmos. John has these two visions. He's told to write these letters, and then he has a vision of heaven in which um, um, he's asked to write these letters and then describe this vision that he experiences. Um, if I were to reduce it to its essentials, I'd say, as I've said at the bottom, if we take Revelation as a whole, this is what we come away with. God has warned us, and, and now let me take a minute. This is going to be something of a meditation here. Um, it seems to me if we walk away from Revelation, what we take away is this. Um, somebody can come away saying, this is a really violent God. 
He punishes people everywhere. It seems to me if we look at this realistically, particularly if we read it after the Gospels, we have to say, God loves everybody. He calls everybody to repent. That's the first action over and over again. He cares more about repenting than he does other things. What people do afterwards, he will ask things of them. But they will be less important than the fact that they turn to him, that they repent, instead of refusing him or turning away. So the first action is, that's, and then, by the way, that's how Christ introduces his ministry. Just call everybody to repentance. Um, he, he sends out his goodness everywhere, but he withdraws his justice. So God gives his permission to evil. He allows it to happen as a part of his plan to help people come back to him. And we see what, why he has to do that, because if people are left to themselves, they will not do it over and over and over again. People, human beings are so self-sufficient, so capable. They're so able to live their lives. Why turn to God? So the, the tendency in people to turn away from him is not small. God has to deal with that all the time. The most important thing is to turn to him. When they do, when we do, things are asked of us. But the beginning of that is repenting. There's a war in heaven. One of the values of showing that war is that we cannot have any questions about the magnitude of evil. And let me elaborate on that if I can for a minute. It seems to me one of the most tempting aspects of the modern world is to downplay evil. There was a movie we watched ages ago in which one of the characters said one of the, one of the trickiest things Satan did was to get, convince people that he didn't exist. Um, if you go around in the world believing that Satan doesn't exist, how well do you deal with evil in yourself or others? If you deny it, it makes it easier for you to do anything. One of the interesting things that God does in Revelation is makes clear he gives his permission for evil. He makes a place for it. There will be a war in heaven and we see the cost of it. The cost of it is extraordinary. So for anybody to downplay evil, to underestimate its power, is to to live in an awful hubris, spirit of absolute arrogance. Um, you can't play around with evil. Um, one of the things we take away from Scripture is um, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's a gift to us. And, and let me let me uh, let me make a note on this. I, God does not want servile fear. That's not our God. He does not want servile fear. He wants fraternal fear. Pater or filial. It's the fear of a son for his dad. Without that fear, something's lost. So the war in heaven shows the magnitude of evil. God does all he can to protect man's free will. He allows a long period of trial. This is how much he loves us. The only thing you can say about why he allowed that long trial of period after the war is over is that he's made it clear he's won. The outcome is settled. Right? Nobody's who can defeat God? Who can defeat Christ? He's God. Anybody going against anybody going against God will be a creature, Satan or men. They're contingent. They don't have absolute power. Nobody can defeat God. The outcome is settled. 
For God to do that and let people live afterwards is to give them even more time to make a choice. How, how careful is he of man's free will? My God. Is that clear? We have a choice. If, if men turn away from him then, <laughs> that's how serious it is. So he's left a long period afterwards. For some people it's a mystery. Um, but it seems to me it's one of his ways of protecting our free will. The, um, the battle settled. We couldn't have more help, more encouragement than that. So if man turns then, he really has committed himself to a dark sign. Two tendencies of the modern world, the secularized world, it, it, um, it's the same that existed in Christ's time. It's our tendency to believe that we're self-sufficient, that we don't need God. Um, and the utopian world is to believe that we can create a world without God. That's the nature of socialistic utopias, that we, can, we don't need them. So we're still facing the same tendencies that we faced in the modern world, to act like we can live on our own and that we don't need God. And, and I say that in the context of Revelation because everything in Revelation makes clear <laughs> the consequences of that are just disastrous. Okay, let me, let me stop. I wanna, I wanna go, I wanna get up to books um, 11 and 12 and 16, but let me stop. Any comments or questions or After all that clarity, <laughs> get inside my head. This is a vision in the future, but how does that how does that play out? And is it is it as the world kind of went worse than it is today and just kept going and kept going? And, and Satan's here now, encouraging people to take the sign, and then eventually God gets. And the wrath comes out to basically say, you're either back here or you're gone. That I think the wrath, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back in a minute, Bob, and maybe it'll help answer your question. I'm not sure, but the anger was always there. It's not like this is anything new. It's clear. Wait, we can, I, I said it last week. We can read Revelation in a couple of ways. We can see it as a vision of the past. Lots of people read it that way. You can see it as a vision of the future. I think there's shortcomings and a narrowing of the mind to read it in either one of those ways. It, it seems to me it's impossible to read it without seeing events of the past in it, but also seeing them continue. So, every, so for example, every major empire has been destroyed. Egypt, Babylon is a big thing here, Tyre, I mean they're named. Um, Rome is destroyed. America is a great empire. Um, Islam was approaching an empire status in the 19th century, got cut down. So you can go back to periods in history and see that cities with great power always faced awful calamities, that they got destroyed. And the destruction was greater than the destruction of a village because it involved a whole culture, a whole people. So that was as true then as it is now. And I don't think God's wrath, if that's the word we're going to use, is more now than it was then. God is who he is. Um, 
So we can apply this to the past and see things. We can apply it to now. I, I want to get to that in a second because I, I think it'll, I hope what I say will bring some clarity on things in the future, but I mean in our present. But I think it's, if it's end times, it's all settled. That's there. That's a re it's like a measuring yard. It, 36 inches is, as a measuring stick will not change. We use that measuring stick because it's fixed to measure lots of things. It won't change. Fine lens won't change. They give us a means of measuring all sorts of other things because of it. We know the final end. How we judge, in fact, we, you know, we, we hear this all the time in, um, in our readings of scripture. Learn to judge human things by eternal ways. We're always make, asked to make our judgments here, whatever we do, against final ends. That's um, a mark of wisdom. When we don't, we get too much caught up in the world and our choices often backfire on, on us, you know, so. Let me come back to it, because let me read. Um, any other, because I, I want to get to the text to, to look at this. Any other quick questions or comments or... One of the difficulties, I mean, it should be clear right now, even if it's obscure, is that the book of Revelation is not an easy book to read because it's not literal. Remember, we've entered eternal time, so we're, we're being asked to understand things here in light of that final vision. Um, that's what makes it so remarkable. You can come out of the gospel and cozy up to Christ. You can't read Revelation and cozy up to anybody. How are you doing? Mm -hmm. God. Better. Sorry. Mary, can, can we get you anything? Can we do anything to help? Would you like something? Narcotics. You want some water? Coffee? Some? Narcotics. <laughs> Narcotics. <laughs> oh, we are kind of close to the border. <laughs> You're going to have to get that on your own. No. All my pain has subsided right to this area over the last maybe four or five days. Yeah. I don't have pain anywhere anymore except right there. But. Can we get you anything? No, thank you. Do you have um, what's a nap, naproxen or what's the pain, the, the little pills that are... I have hydrocodone with acetaminophen. Do you have that, something? Yeah, they had me on oxycodone. Yeah. And, uh, that might help clear up your thinking for a change. <laughs> just all like, what can I say? Pray for me, please. It's just... I was not in good shape to like the first few days. You are amazing to be here. You are genuinely amazing to be here. God. Tylenol or the other medic, I'm not thinking of the name of it, but okay, very, very quickly, very quickly to get to this point because I want to get to it. You know that the second vision begins with John being asked to um, write down what he sees. Everybody has got to be clear on this. Everybody's got to be clear because if you don't get this clear, everything else is just going to get muddier. God the Father has a scroll, and it's sealed. Everybody hold on to this, because it's, it's a principle. It's absolutely crucial to seeing the whole thing. A seal, you know, traditionally, it is always an edict. 
It's an official pronouncement. It authorizes something, right? It's sealed up. Nobody knows what it is. So just start at a simple, literal level. John is using language that we should understand, right? A seal is an envelope. It's sealed. Inside of it is an edict. It's authorizing something, right? So when, when the angels start opening the seals, they're revealing what God has authorized. It's from him. It just can't be any doubt. To be in chapter 6, just briefly to go back. Um, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice of thunder, Come, and I saw, behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. That's an emanation from God. That's an image, right, concrete image that we can all relate to, but it's an image of a power emanating from him to conquer, right? It's, he's authorizing it. It's from him. When he opened the second, come out a writer, red, bright red. Writer was permitted to take peace from the earth. Peace is going to be with God. God is going to let people do what they're going to do. That's a power coming from him. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse are emanations from him. Right? The trumpets simply announce all of that has begun. That's what trumpets do. So when you're reading Revelation, at least keep the simple literal things that we can grasp in your mind because it'll help you understand the seven seals, the seven trumpets. I want to get to the seven bowls in a minute. But um, we've gone through that all. So we've seen it, right? Um, he describes these woes, these two woes. These are all the sufferings, the natural calamities, the punishments. By the way, just a, it's, as an interesting side comment, in chapter 9, when he's describing the trumpets and what comes out of them, the, the locusts and things like that, in those days men will seek death and not find it. They will long to die in death. That is, things become so bad. This is... Chapter 9, verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses arrayed for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots. And it, it goes on. Um, down below a little bit, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders were, wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur issued from their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. It's from the smoke from the horses. I don't know how much authority I can give this, but I offer it as just a thought of my own. I can't read these passages without being reminded of, you know, the breastplates and the hair and things like that. I can't read them without being reminded of um, Roman soldiers trampling in, and um, Islamic forces who have conquered and adorned themselves with similar kinds as Islam marched across Europe like locusts. One of the, one of the Protestant readings of, the, of this is that one of, the, one of the woes was Islam. 
and I don't want to give too much credence to that, but, but I, want, I want to put it in perspective. He's describing warriors with breastplates and shining and red, and it's hard for me to picture that without seeing Roman soldiers dressed the way they are, and even um, Islamic soldiers. In John's, I think it's John's first letter, letter of St. John, first letter, and I, can't, I think it's the fourth chapter, I can't remember. In that letter, John says, anybody, anybody who denies Christ divinity is the Antichrist. That's a pretty stark. Anybody who denies his divinity um, is Antichrist. Islam, as a religion, denies Christ's divinity. And Islam was on a march. I mean, I haven't gone into this, but it was on a march, really conquered a lot of Europe and north of Africa. It, and conquered, um, we've talked about it a little bit. Well, all the way to Spain and the, the, the whole southern Mediterranean. I mean, they marched across Europe. Um, they got to Spain and Spain was half Islam for a long time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The, the, yeah. the point that I wanted to make is um, Islam conquered Constantinople. The, the empire had moved from Rome to Constantinople and that's why there were all these battles between the um, Roman West and the um, Byzantium Greek East. In fact, um, Boethius' death was a result of intrigues between those two powers. Islam conquered Byzantium, and there are lots of historians who mark that as the end of the Middle Ages, the Christian Middle Ages come to an end with, with the destruction of Byzantium. We're into the modern world at that time and away from the Holy Roman Empire. So a whole new caste was given to the world by virtue of what Islam did with its conquests. And it's interesting that they, that they gained that power. They were probably the dominant empire, world power, one of them at least, until the war, the Second World War, when they were defeated and, um, and Islam went against itself. The, the Iraqi and Iranian Muslims went against, or those in um, Arabia, went against them because they had allied themselves with uh, Japan and Germany. So to go back to the empires, world empires, what was going on with Egypt or Babylon or Tyre, or any of those cities, was going on with Constantinople. Or, or the modern world and right now in America. We're, so we're looking at the same sorts of things. Um, here's where I wanted to get to tonight to, to get us to the end. In book 12, after we've been given images of all these catastrophes and the two woes that John covers, we get a vision of a woman um, in chapter 12, a great portent appeared in heaven, a, wo a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon, that's Mary. Another portent appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of heaven. Um, he, um, he, um, he pursues, her, pursues her because he wants to kill her child. The child is taken up and protected. A war took place between Michael and the angels and the dragon and his angels, those who rebelled. 
So that's how violent angels have an intellectual nature superior to ours. They have no bodies. They're closer to God. They have a light to see. They don't see through bodies. That's how good they are. You don't want to play around with, with demons. It's good to have a personal angel watching out for us um, because their, their light, their closeness to God is, is um, extraordinary. Um, they defeat the, the devil. Um, the woman is protected, so is the man, so is the child. And then in 13, it, um, we get this description. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Now, hold on. We just had Satan described this way. Everybody pay attention. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, this is verse 3 and 12. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems upon his heads. He sees a, um, a beast come out of the sea like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion. To it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Okay? Men worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. Now, the description of this beast is this. Ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems upon its horns. Is that the devil? Or is there a difference? How good are, how well are you reading? Are they the same? How many heads does the dragon have? Seven. Seven heads. How many horns? Ten. Ten. How many... Let's see, where is it? Um, how many horns does the beast have? How many heads? Is there any difference between the two of them in that respect? Yes. Some heads have more than one horn. Wait, it says seven heads, ten horns. The beast has seven heads and ten horns. Is there a difference just in that respect? No. But it says of the beast he has ten diadems upon its horns. And it says of the dragon, sorry? So are they the same? Are they the same? No. But they're almost identical. Right? In, in so many respects, they're like each other. And we know it's not the devil, even though it resembles it, because it says below, um, men worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. Now the question is, and I want to just wait, who is this beast in the world? Because he gets his authority from Satan. Just hold on for a minute. That's one. Passage 11. Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. The first one came out of the sea, right? This one comes out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. What does the fact that it has horns like a lamb suggest? Hold on. Just, just keep it. And it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wounds was healed. It works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men and by the signs which it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast 
It deceives those who dwell on earth, bidding them to make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast should even speak and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And we know these people who follow them because they all have this 666 on their forehead. Now, who are these two beasts? Who are these two beasts? They get their authority from Satan. What's the difference between them? Who are they? Because to go back to Bob's question, they, if we take this seriously, they were there at the beginning of things with Enoch's city, Tyre, Egypt, Babylon, Rome, it doesn't matter. They're there today. Um, because they've been there. They got, um, since the dragon did battle with God. So who are these two beasts? Because they're here in our world today. If we're, if we're saying that this is always here, who are they? Don't look at your notes. Well, I have some cheater notes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care if your side is hurt. You cannot use those notes, Mary. Okay. <laughs> Sin Huh? Sin and death. Can you make sense of it, Mike? Uh, no, I think I think Milton had that. Was, I think he talked about sin and death as beasts. If I'm not confusing with another epic, but uh, I remember there was a, an agent defeated the. Uh, I can't make sense of it, but but I you know the. Sin and death were loose in the world and, made, and, and having their way with the human race. And they were depicted as beasts. Yeah, I'm, and I've read Milton. It's been a long time since. I, be careful with Milton. Just be careful with him. Um, his description of sin and death, if I remember correctly, is that sin was so enamored. It's, it's been a while. Sin was so enamored of itself that it made incestuous love with itself and produced death. It's, it's like a narcissistic love that's behind. Once you turn from God, that we tend to be selfish in our loves, to see ourselves. And, and Milton's treatment of that is that um, death was, I think I've got that the right way, was the product of that. It's an incestuous. But anybody else? Who are these two beasts? Where are you in 12? Uh, Thir 13. 13, sorry, okay. Sorry, go ahead. So that, that sounds to me like it's a, um, it is civilization itself. It's the, the, it's the world, like the world in the, the biblical sense. Um, and the thought process is behind a world that is disconnected from God. And then the second beast. Wait, stop there. Anybody, any other, anybody got thoughts about that? always associate sea monsters living in the sea like the Loch Ness monster and all that so people at this time were probably very familiar with they believed in sea monsters mm -hmm. so 
the great monsters were going to come from the sea, which could be the nations that surrounded the sea, their navies that came on the sea to conquer them. Whereas I thought the land ones were the nations on land that came to conquer by land. Wait on that. Any, anybody else on the first piece? Let me. It just sounds like a false prophet, basically, that somebody's preaching to people and saying that is not a good follow this. Well, the second one, the second one is clearly related to prophecy because of the way it's described. So hold off on that, Bob. Hester, any, go ahead. Right. Yeah. Esther, you have any thoughts about why what the sea means here it came out of? Because it's it's so pointed. The first one came out of the sea, the second one came out of the land. You have any thoughts about that? Yeah. You know that the sea's been an important image for us in the literature. The Odyssey, Shakespeare's Tempest, we, I think we did that, Merchant of Venice, but the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Divine Comedy, when Dante gets to the Paradiso, he talks about finishing his trip in this boat, and he describes the danger of the sea because he associates the sea with a grace. And I've been suggesting all along that the sea is an image of of it's not our home. Um, it's, Moby Dick is going to take place on the sea. Um, it's not our home. It's generally associated with the dangers of the indefinite. So it's different from the land because the land is a definite place. The sea is indefinite. So for this beast to come out of the sea suggests something like my own, my own, just offer my own thought. My own thoughts about the first beast is I think he's identified with all the material powers that are gathered in a city, but coextensive with everything in civilization, along what you're saying. Because the tendency in civilization is idolatry to, to love what you have instead of turning to God, wherever you are. But it tends to get focused in the city because that's the center of power. That's what everybody's afraid of. The, the, the chosen, it's a, the Jews are a conquered people. Rome destroyed, they conquered them. They're going to destroy the temple. The city is the focus of power and authority, and it images everything that you want, desire, wealth, security. So you give into it all the time. And you can say, without exaggeration, you worship it. And it's interesting that it comes out of the sea because the sea is always an image of something indefinite. It can be really dangerous. It can be the dangers can be associated with graces that you enter into mysteries. It's indefinite. You can't, can't get control of it. Odysseus in the, um, in the Odyssey. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, sorry. 
In the Odyssey, remember he was on the island of Phaeacia. The Phaeacians moved away from the Cyclops because they were so brutal, and they created this modern technological world. They had control over everything. Um, gravity, they could dance, they weren't bound by, they could art, beautiful structures, beauty everywhere. They performed dances, they had games, it was, it was the most civilized place that Odysseus had visited in all of his, and they offer him conveyance home. And Antinous, the king, keeps saying, our ships go according to the thoughts of men. They don't even have to bother with nature. Wherever their mind goes, their ships go. It's, it's the most perfect image of technology. It, 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 I mean, people act like, you know, we, we know more than Homer because he lived 3,000 years ago. There's almost nothing he didn't know about the world. That's the perfect image of technology, that thoughts will do it. We don't even need to... Well, what happens to the ship? Because they, they say, we don't, have to be afraid of the, we don't have to be afraid of anything. We'll take you home. Our ships go like thought over the water. What happens when they get to Ithaca? Hmm? Poseidon puts a mountain over them. Yeah. Why? Because he's mad at them for helping Odysseus. Well, he is. Because they were helping Odysseus. Well, because they were helping Odysseus, but they also had the presumption to think they could control nature. What's the problem with controlling nature in the Greek world? Where are the gods? You presume to crawl. I mean, think about the like, um, what's the or the park thing, the Jurassic Park. The the, un, the theme underlying that is these people who think they can keep controlling nature and make it do what they want, and they keep you know, it's a very modern concern because science so often encourages us to think we can master nature. Homer's response is, "You don't fool around with the gods." Poseidon dumps a ship on them. He, I mean, he's angry at Odysseus, but it's also an interesting. Act, it's, it's, it's showing the hubris of the Phaeacians that they thought they could master nature. You don't do that. Go, that's, a, that's a pagan idea. Who made nature according to our beliefs? God. You think you can control nature? The first beast came out of the sea. It's an image of something indefinite, some power, but I, but I think it's an image of the collective material forces that can gain such control in our world. Even though it's, it's coextensive with um, civilization, it's focused in the city. People worship it. They're not, they're, who's going to go against the city? Because if you do, you know all, what happened to all the martyrs. What's the second beast? Who, what is the second beast? First beast is not? Well, it, it is like the Antichrist personified because it talks about how he, um, he had been wounded by the sword. I mean, it's in, I think this is in other places in the Bible, too, where it talks about what the Antichrist would do. He had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. Um, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Um, where does it say that he healed? It works great signs, even making fire come down from... Who did that in the ancient world? The prophets. These are the prophets who are sent by the beast 
who support it, who make that beast and its powers clear. So this is the whole modern, or at any age, the prophetic, think about all the false prophets in the Old Testament. Who, and who was their god? Generally the city, the emperor. So I think the second beast from land, it's more limited in its powers, it reflects the beast, but it's noted by its prophetic powers. It can call, it's, it does exactly the same thing the prophets did. They exercise the authority of the first beast, inhabitants worship the first, works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth. Listen to this, this is so, and by the sign which it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. So if the, earth, if the first beast is, let's just say, the city or collective material powers, earthly powers, um, deceives those who dwell in there, bidding them make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword, and it was allowed to give breath to the image, it makes it real. Um, the image of the beast should even speak, and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Give me an image of that in our modern culture. Wait, let me go. Who are the prophets? Of, who are the prophets? Who are the false, according to this, who are the false prophets? And can we find examples of um, punishing those who don't follow them with death, taking away their lives? Who are the false prophets today? <laughs> I'm really, I'm, I'm trying to skirt a line. Can you be suggestive here? <laughs> Coliseum, right. who were eaten by lions. Right. That went on for several hundred years. Right. And then you had uh, many false prophets, Jewish leaders, who gave into this stuff to save their own skins. Right. So they corrupted people, swayed them enough right. by using right language, doing signs. We would call it political correct language. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's getting close here. Right, right. They betrayed their own people. Right. Can we can we identify any of this today and be suggestive? I don't know how to. I'm trying to be really careful here. Yes. Can we can we can? We get all over our culture when you see the transgender movement that anybody who tries to speak out against that. Yeah. I mean, they not live figuratively to kill, but they try to kill their careers. They try to. Um, the cancel culture destroy statues, they take away the lives of people. I mean, they really do close down work. They, I mean, if, if um, taking away the identity of somebody is a form of killing, that cancel culture does it all the time. Anybody goes against that socialist left, trying to be careful of names here, but the, this utopia, anybody who goes against that is gonna suffer, maybe not the way the Christians did in the early, but to take Mary's parallel, which is a good one, and to go to Bob's question, the same things are going on today. They, all, they always have gone on. They always will go on. Let's just push it off to Brazil. What's going on in Brazil right now? And it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing. You've got somebody dictating that this is the way it's going to go. If you don't like it, then you're going to be right. condemned or imprisoned. Right, right. Like, right. people or something like yeah. that. So it's Communist China. Yeah. Anywhere in, anywhere in the communist world, yeah. Well, in, in Africa, I guess you want to go to Africa, there is not about this cobalt. They need to make these batteries. It's all child and slave labor. And if you 
don't work, you don't eat, you're going to get money, you're just thrown away. So, uh, so to put, if I can, because we're, I wanted, I wanted to, I'm never good at it. <laughs> I wanted to, if, um, if we can put this in perspective, it's always here. I hope that partly answers your question, Bob. It's never not here. The final end is always there. It always has been there. It defines the cities, what goes on. You know that in our work together, we, we didn't have Revelation behind us, but when we did the Iliad, the Odyssey, Rome, any of the works we did, Shakespeare's uh, Merchant of Venice, Venice, Florida, we, we've been... Here we have a work um, prophetic um, by somebody who was given the power by Christ to reveal final ends. So we're seeing the outcome, and it's, it's presented in such a way that we can relate it to lots of historical events back then, right now, in the future. I hope that's clear. You know, the, I, I mean, from what you're saying, I'm assuming it is, the first beast, look at the first beast as the, as the collective powers focused in a city, Moscow, New York, you know, wherever you want to go, America. And um, it offers a utopian view of the world. This is the way the world, this is what we'll do. The prophets, if, if we only do this, if we can get rid of this, we will, we will bring heaven on earth. I can't say that strong enough. I mean, if you're following this, you're seeing it. Um, you can call it the woke culture, whatever you want to call it. If only we can get rid of these things, um, we will have heaven on earth. We will, we will have the garden here. So there's always the prophets telling us, in fact, one of the beauties in the, in the prophetic thing, I can't remember it's in um, 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 Isaiah, but um, one of the prophets, um, prophecy, we had this in the last year in a reading, I can't remember what it was, he prophesied peace and good times. And can you help me, Mary? It, and the real prophet came out and said, you're doing everybody to the service because we're approaching really hard times. So the people you want to be most careful of are the people who want to sweeten everything, make it nice, because we're so seduced by wanting our life to go well. So these prophets are the false prophets. Um, <laughs> you don't have to look far in legislature to find them. The utopian view of the world, that if we just get rid of these things, um, we, will, we, will, we will redeem the world. We will save you. So it's the language of the Savior. It's, it's put in political terms, but it's the same language. It's just been brought down to earth in political terms. Politically correct. People who go against that. The, what's the term I used a while? The cancel culture. You know, that actually destroys things, images, gets rid of them because they're, they're blasphemous. Let's stop here. Here, I've got, just hold on. I'd like, so next week we'll finish. What I'd like to do is start here and then look at that new city, John's description of a new city, because it's one of the most amazing descriptions of a city that we've ever had in the work we've done with a city. We will finish that, and is somebody signed up for food for next, yes. for next week? Okay. And we'll finish Revelation, and then we'll take a break. Um, if I can ask this, if you would, all of you keep Mary in your prayers, please. Good night's sleep, that's what I want. Aww. And um, Connie, 
and whoever else that's, I mean, lots of people are, there's something going around today that's, um, any last final comments before we leave? I was just thinking about language and how language can be used today. Uh, the southern border was described as the greatest migration of all times. And it just struck me how you can look at the same thing. And the language that you use you know, can lead people Two entirely different ways. Yep. 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 Yeah. So true. So true. Um, enjoy the rest of Revelation. It's it's so good. Um, watch out for the beasts. Both of them. Be on be on guard. Um, you guys have a good week. See you next week.